You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, October 19th, 2011, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. And back from his whirlwind tour of Italy, Jay. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Salutations and felicitations. So, Jay, welcome back. We missed you. Oh, my you. God. I really, I feel like I haven't sat down and done a show for what? It's been over a month now, a month and a half? Yeah, because we had all the live shows and everything. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Jay, let's cut to the chase. Best meal yeah. in Italy. What was it? Well, by far, Rome had the best food. Yeah. You know, I was in Venice. I was in Florence. I spent some time in Tuscany, and then I was in Rome. And the, the food got better as I went south. I absolutely loved this trip. It was it was one of it was absolutely the best trip I've ever taken in my life. It was wow. fen- it was phenomenal. Every everything about it. The art and culture is everywhere. It's in every corner of every city in, in Italy, and and even you know a lot of the smaller towns, you know have have fantastic works of art that are just priceless and and so beautiful. Like you just. You know, you really do a reality check. Living in the United States, we're very, very dry on on art like this. Like we don't have it. We don't have that much of it, and and it's very much in the cities. And there's not much else to, to be found. And even the landscape in in Tuscany was another thing. And I didn't know this, but the landscape in Tuscany was mostly was worked by hand. I thought it was just the way that it was there, but really, you know, it's it it's it's the farmland. It it. it the farm, the, every, everywhere they're growing uh, grapes and they're growing olives and, and a lot of other crops too that I, I didn't know about. You know, then uh, Rome is just, Rome is very much in your face. It, there's a lot of people, there, a ton of people. It was a sea of people everywhere and everybody is sightseeing and, and shopping and eating and walking around and Courtney and I went into um, St. Peter's and we looked at uh, Michelangelo's oh Pieta, Pieta was, yeah. It's the, wow. I, mean, I mean, literally, we started crying when we saw it. It was, so, it's so unbelievably Baby. striking when you see it. How beautiful it is, and you can't, you cannot Baby. see it in a picture. Right. You look at a picture, and it it just How washes the whole thing out. I mean, when you're there, well, <laughs> that, would, that would be amazing. It would be awesome to catalog all this stuff. Of course, I'm having these incredible geeky thoughts, like, you know, if there's a massive earthquake, you know, how well did they? take pictures of these things and are they doing anything to preserve them three-dimensionally and I, you know I, I was thinking of stuff like that Steve because there's yeah. just so much of it well that's been reproduced several times for different museums around the world and you know I, I just can't say enough about how emotional it is to see the the art and to see how old things are and you know you're reading about everything before you go and after you go, you know, and you find I found out so much about Italy I didn't know, and I th- you know, I thought I knew quite a bit about Italian culture and the art and everything, but just you know you just take one one artist, you know, like I I've, I was really paying attention to all the things that Michelangelo had done all over Italy, you know, just everywhere you go, and I was and I thought I was a huge fan of his work, and now I'm I'm just so emotionally attached to to everything that he's done that I could, that I saw and you know I was already looking things up on the internet here I'm like oh god I just wish I had more time and more money to to you know to do these types of things speaking of looking up on the internet I just looked up a particular statue uh, and 
to correct myself, the replicas didn't go to museums. They all went to churches and cathedrals around the world. And one uh, was actually used as a model in reconstruction of the original after damage in 1972. Oh, what do you know? So, yeah, some, know. some loser like jumped on it and started hacking away at it. Really? Is that what happened? Yeah, Jay. Did they? Was it was behind glass when I was there a long time ago? It was behind glass. You couldn't even get close to it. Yeah, it was. It was behind plexiglass. Like the center part portion was open, but you're far away from it. You you can't get right up on it anymore. And somebody um, also took a hammer to uh, to David, the statue David. What? Yeah, yeah. They broke off right. one of the toes, and um, it was. You remember? Oh the, my God. The story was that the guy was told by God to to do it, and he was a frustrated artist, and and uh, you know he was like emotionally really losing it, and he he damaged the statue, and they, you know they repaired it now. But that's the uh, that's another piece of artwork that when you uh. see it, the whole room fades away. I mean it it it's striking. It, that's the, oh that's man, Jay, reality fades away. That that was all this when I toured Italy. That was one of the most memorable things of all the things I saw. That's the one that. My jaw just dropped, and I just didn't move for like 15 minutes just staring at it. It was just so magnificent. Incredible. The, the, the actual most pseudoscientific experience I had was the actual limo ride home from the airport last really? night. Oh, my God. Yeah. So getting back, yeah. getting back to America, okay. you experienced it. We get in the car, and he right away starts talking to me about vaccinations. I mean, my wife, Why? My wife was reading online and just wanted to talk about something. The guy like was desperate for conversation. And that's what he chose? That's so odd. It's I know. So, so I'm sitting there, and I'm like, dude, you don't know who you have in the backseat right now. <laughs> <laughs> You just don't know who you're talking to. So I let him talk. I let him dig himself in pretty good for about 15 minutes. And then I'm like, okay. Dude. I'm like, let's go back to the 1990s and let's talk about a man named Andrew Wakefield. And I started there and I finished after a two-hour ride from JFK <laughs> back home. I, I talked most of the time. You gave a two-hour lecture on vaccines. And I explained to him how, you know, if you look for something on the Internet, you know, you could pretty much find confirmation for any belief that you want just because it's on there and you have to be very critical on your sources. And, you know, and he had this big chip on his shoulder about not trusting doctors. And I'm like, well, okay, sure. You know, all doctors are all medical doctors aren't good and you need to be critical on who your doctor is, of course. And, you know, these experts and they all they care about are giving you medication. And I'm like, why would a doctor only care about giving you medication? You know, that whole talk about how, you know, indeed most doctors are, you know, have no, no gain from prescribing one drug over another. And, you know, and he's like, you know, they don't know that vinegar can cure so many things. And I'm like, I said, no. you know, why would you say that? You know, why, you know, so I even went in, I'm like, I'm questioning his, his, methodology you know how are you coming to that conclusion why do you believe the, the things that you're saying right now you know, yeah. we, we went yeah. everywhere just had, we had a great conversation and then at the end as we're about to pull into the driveway he came he said, out with, oh yeah uh, he came out with like the the total like uh conversation eraser that we've all had where like you know you spend this whole time talking to the person and then as if the conversation didn't take place he just said like one more thing and i'm like oh God, is this time to collapse now? Like I'm not not going there. So you didn't make any headway. I I tried, but well, you, you know, might have. Maybe you, know, you, you planted never, a seed. Yeah, you never. Yeah, know. you can never tell in the moment. They're never going to just be thought. like, "Oh, you're right." You know. Thanks, Jay. Let's uh, Evan do our um, this day in skepticism before we move on to some news items. Yep. <laughs> 
So the culmination of 14 months' worth of testing came to a crescendo on October 21st, 1879, when in the laboratories of Thomas Alva Edison, he and his team of engineers finally found a way to create an incandescent light bulb of sufficient illumination duration, which at the time was 13 and a half hours, and that was significantly longer than its closest competitor. So it's marked as the day that the incandescent light bulb was effectively, as we know it, invented. Mm-hmm. Cool. He found a way to make it practical. And man, did he use the brute force method in trying to discover oh, yeah. that. You know, how many Tested everything. It's a thousand or ten thousand ten thousand, I think. He thought that he and his team would be at this for roughly three months to figure it out. It took fourteen months. He and forty researchers had to <laughs> bang their heads against the wall for better for over a year. Well, but they spent years just systematically going through every uh, material that they could think of to make a filament out of, but they kept burning out until until he found tungsten. Carbon, cotton, compressed to carbon. Yeah, compressed to carbon. Tungsten came later. Tungsten came in uh, 1910, and that, you know, that revolutionized uh, everything. Now, shortly after his, his experiment in this 13-and-a-half-hour bulb came along, he and his team did some experimenting with bamboo, compressing bamboo down into a carbon strip, and that filament lasted 1,200 hours. Whoa. Wow. And not that it needs to be said, but for a moment, just think about how profound that is and how much it changed things. I mean... To have a, a very strong light that you can turn on at any time, like we take that so for granted, right? It's ridiculous. How, uh, what about gaslight though? Didn't didn't it take a while to supplant actual gaslighting? Well, yeah, you needed the, the, infra- the, infrastructure. the infrastructure was already in place. Yeah. Yeah. So That's it's it's right. not like overnight. Oh yeah, let's switch to this. I mean, it actually took longer than you would think. No, generations actually, because uh, they were they were making lights illuminate with gases for you know decades prior to that. But it, they couldn't. They couldn't make it affordable. They couldn't make it practical until finally it uh, came to be by Edison and his team. Well, let's move on to some news items. A few weeks ago, there was a news story going around about neutrinos moving faster than light, and we were still getting emails from people asking us to cover this news item. Actually, we did cover it during the twenty-four hour live show. We had a long conversation with Phil, Phil Plate about it. That show has been online for a while, and we'll be actually making it available as well, and edited and uh, and post-produced, you know, improved version of it. But um, there has been a little bit of an update in this story, so it's a good opportunity to to give a recap of this, Bob. Yeah, so uh, this was uh, I knew this was coming, but um, but it looks like those pesky superluminal neutrinos may be may be subluminal after all, and it, I, you can kind of kind of predict that. Although there was always this hope of new physics, but not faster than light physics. But I'm sure you guys all remember the announcement, like Steve said, um, from physicists at CERN when they declared that they measured neutrinos traveling a tiny bit faster than the speed of light. Um, a blogger at Device had a great quote. He's like, physics, we have a problem. Um, and that <laughs> God, how many neutrino jokes did I see about that? I was, you know, after the 10th, I was just like, okay, I've seen this joke a hundred times. Thank you very much. But this is actually a big deal, if, even if it might not quite seem that way, because this type of change um, would throw m- much of modern physics into disarray. Causality would essentially go out the window. And I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to live in a universe where effect can precede cause. Call me silly. It's, it's kind of funny uh, then that the theory that this discovery would 
have overturned relativity has recently been shown to hit to hit right back and, and really hard. Now, very briefly, scientists at CERN spent three years uh, shooting a beam of neutrinos through the Earth from Switzerland to Italy. Jay, did you see any neutrinos while you were in Italy? <laughs> uh, you, you probably you probably did just didn't notice, but um, the neutrinos you remember those those ghostly particles with a tiny bit of mass that travel close to the speed of light and uh, and through matter like it was like it were essentially nothing. Now after about fifteen thousand experiments, which I think is more than what Edison did for his light bulb, they uh, they felt they reached a level of statistical confidence to make this formal announcement of their of their findings and have and have other scientists vet it. Um, now, these findings were that these, these particles were arriving at the detectors 60 billionths of a second early, which means that they'd have to travel a little bit faster of light since they, they travel so close to the speed of light anyway. So, so, of course, people were declaring that time machines were right around the corner. It's like, you know, they just bought it hook, line, and sinker, and they just jumped to the conclusion that, yeah, this is, uh, this is, this is valid and this is where we're, where we're at. But, uh, but I mean, I, like I said, I wasn't really worried about it. I suspect that there had to be some subtle error in their calculations. It just seemed overwhelming. You know what's funny, Bob? Yeah. That uh, you're right, though, a lot of uh, the cranks or even just people who are supporting other outrageous theories started bringing this up. Like, oh, yeah, well, like, if, like for example, there was a, a comment discussion on a homeopathy article, and one of the defenders of homeopathy was saying, yeah, well, well they, just because homeopathy violates the laws of physics doesn't mean anything. What about those neutrinos they discovered that violate the laws of physics and go faster than light? Oh, man. And, and uh, somebody responded, yeah, exactly. What about them? That's why the whole scientific community responded with, you know, we don't believe it. There's got to be something wrong. This is really extraordinary. You know, we would need a ton of evidence in order to accept this as true. And I think that even the researchers themselves who put out the paper were, they put it out because they were pretty sure there must be something wrong there. And, and sending yeah. it out for peer review is the way to find that out as quickly as possible. No, they, they, their approach was basically help us figure out what we're doing wrong because yeah. we can't find it. Right. And, and if it turns out, if in the un, very unlikely possibility that there is new physics here, that's great. But I'm sure, I'm sure all, all of them, if they had to put money on it, would have thought, well, yeah, there's probably some quirky thing that, that we haven't thought about. And, and, you know, with stuff like this, it just seems so, so much more likely that, that that's exactly what it was. That, that physics was not going to be completely overturned and that it was just something, some little thing that they, uh, they had neglected. And you really, you know, you really shouldn't deride them. You shouldn't ride them too hard because they, from what I gathered, they really, they did some good science and they really, yeah. Dotted all their I's and crossed all their T's. But, you know, nobody's, nobody's perfect. And, and this, you know, this isn't definitive anyway. We're still not 100% sure what went on. But, uh, but it's not like these, these guys were just like mucking around like, hey, look what we discovered type of thing. I mean, 15,000 experiments, that's a lot of experiments. Now, one, one good, one very good early hint that there, there was something wrong with this research. And I was kind of bummed that I didn't think, I didn't think of this. Because uh, I was aware that um, the supernova, there was a supernova in 1987 uh, that that went off, and, in, and I think it was uh, one of the uh, Magellanic clouds. One of the ways that we detected it was th- was the uh, the neutrinos that hit that hit the detectors. Like I think three hours before any of the photons did, and that that's because the since photons don't have any charge, I mean since neutrinos don't have any charge, they just when the when the supernova happens, they just they're just released, they're created and released in vast numbers. But the photons, they just you know they're bouncing around, they're getting absorbed and reabsorbed, and it takes them a little a little a little while to actually get going. So when if you see a lot of these uh, neutrinos heading your way from space, then that's 
pretty good indication that uh, that there was actually a supernova that went off. So if you look at the, if you look at that, if you just kind of know that. Um, and you and you think about this uh, study that they came out with, these opera researchers researchers came out with. If this was if that if they were correct, then that would mean that the neutrinos from the 1987 supernova should have arrived four years before before the photons um, before the photons did it. But it really only was a few hours. That kind of decreases the likelihood significantly in my eyes that uh, that these neutrinos were arriving uh, you know were arriving a little bit faster than they than they should have. Isn't that a Deal killer? I mean, that seems like a, it, it's not a nail in the coffin of that claim. Yeah, it, it pretty much is. But then, you know, you look at you look at all the search these guys have done for three years, and it still cries out for an, for an explanation. But I didn't really come across a lot of people saying, "Well, here it is. Why, you know, why do we even need to examine this even more?" But you're right; that one it really does kick it to the curb, and it's like, "Well, yeah, how do you explain that?" But but more most recently, um, the preprint server, the archive uh, server. Uh, they've, there's like 80, there's like 80 alternative explanations that, that they're coming yeah. out with, that they've been coming out with. And the, the coolest one that I came across was, was the idea that the particles were traveling through extra dimensions. That would be, that would be cool because here you've got these particles and they're not necessarily, they're not traveling faster than the speed of light, but it would also demonstrate that, yeah, there are extra dimensions that they're traveling through. And there's been lots of speculation about that for years and there's just no, you know, just no one's really, uh, come up with an experiment to definitively show that, and this would have been cool if if it turns out to be the case. Although it's, it's fairly unlikely at this point, there was a paper released that that disputes this whole faster than light claim based on relativity. Now the opera researchers uh, used the GPS satellites uh, to measure the distance between the the detector and the, the neutrino origin point at CERN. Relativity says that the calculations that you that you use have to be different if the if the observers are moving relative to one another. So that means that the relationship between the satellite to the detectors and the and CERN, which produce the neutrinos, changes over time. And that what that was key. And it's kind of a little bit surprising that they didn't really consider that as as fully as they as they should have. Uh, according to uh, Dutch re- researcher Ronald. Elberg, he said that from the perspective of the clock, the detector is moving towards the source, and consequently, the distance traveled by the particles or observed from the clock is shorter. So shorter here means shorter than the distance if you measured it on the ground. So because this satellite was moving relative to uh, to the to the observers, to the the detector and CERN, that it's different than if you measure the distance from the ground. So so when you plug in the numbers. Uh, which is what these researchers did. The difference came out to be almost exactly what the opera researchers said that the, the, the discrepancy was, and that's the, that's a huge red red yeah. flag. When you, know, when you when you take when you take into account a, a physical principle and it just wipes away uh, the error that the, the discrepancy that you're talking about, it's like okay, well, yeah, this this is you know, pretty bad. I mean, this is really. Uh, Really does a job on on that theory. Could be a coincidence, but yeah, it's, it could it's confirmation be. that it's it still it keeps it as a very plausible explanation if it is the right number if it if it accounts for the discrepancy. So yeah, yeah, it's not looking good. I mean, I think I, I'm I think we could say at this point in time that these neutrinos are not moving faster than the speed of light. And this is a probable explanation for the error, but we still need to hear from the original researchers. I think about whether or not they had accounted for this and. And see if this really pans out and 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 accounts for it. I just hope that when the final answer is agreed upon by everybody, that it gets as much press as the original story did. You know, it won't. You know, it won't. But (laughs) (laughs) well, nearly exciting. But we'll talk about it. For how many years are we going to have to be correcting cranks who are saying that? Neutrinos move faster than light, so those scientists Years. don't know everything. Years, the rest of our lives, forever. (laughs) Yeah, forever. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
it's done. Well, it gives us one more thing to correct. At least we have the final trump card. Right? That's true. Science. Forty years from now, remember when we talked about those neutrinos way back? <laughs> right. All right. Well, thanks, Bob. There is uh, another story uh, that it's actually not a new bit of research. The research was done back in May or was published in May, but uh, Edzard Ernst wrote about a Rye study recently, and I blogged about it today because I thought it was very interesting. Um, you guys know what Rye is? I always said Reiki. Have I been saying it wrong all the time, yeah. or is this just no. another example of you making up your own weird I'm making up my own pronunciation. I think it is Reiki, actually. R-A-Y-K-E-Y. What was the other one? You want to start start over, Steve? Oh, Rifid. (laughs) Arfid. 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 All right. So do you guys know what Reiki is? Sure. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Energy healing. (laughs) It's the Japanese energy healing. It's basically faith healing for Japanese. So from Reiki.org... It's a brief overview. Reiki is a Japanese technique for stress reduction and relaxation that also promotes healing. That's where they go too far, by the way. It is administered by laying on hands and is based on the idea that an unseen life force energy flows through us and is what causes us to be alive. Now, wait a minute. I could have said all that with five letters. Magic. Yes, magic. It's magic. (laughs) If one's life force energy is low, then we are more likely to get sick and feel stress. And if it's high, we are more capable of being happy and healthy. So there's your quick overview. Uh, So that's basically it. It's like therapeutic touch or any other energy medicine, energy healing, you know, woo nonsense. Um, It is popular, however, among nurses in the U.S. I'm not sure how popular it is elsewhere. Uh, in fact, it's used by nurses at my own institution, embarrassingly enough, at Yale. Whoa. Ouch. Yeah, it's terrible. And there, so I looked at the research for this uh, to, as part of the, my research for my article. There's a recent review of the clinical research into Reiki. And essentially, the, re- the reviewers concluded that the current research is terrible. <laughs> essentially, there's only a bunch of crappy studies and you can't draw any conclusions from it. Uh, which is what I, I agree looking through the studies that have been done. They're, they're poorly controlled, small studies, etc. Uh, but then, of course, they go on to conclude that, um, therefore, we need to do better and more research, whereas I would conclude this is implausible magic. Give and it we, up. Can, we can give it up. <laughs> yeah. You're chasing a unicorn. <laughs> right. But, uh, but there was one good study in terms of the research design that was published uh, a few months ago, and, and Ernst was, was commenting about it recently, which is what brought my attention to it, uh, where they did do a, control, a controlled study. They had three, three groups, Reiki, fake Reiki, where somebody who is not... Fakey. Fakey, mm-hmm. we call it fakey. And somebody who's not trained... Uh, who just basically mimes the motions of Reiki, but does, is not doing anything, and then no no intervention. And guess what they found? Uh oh, I have no idea. <laughs> Zero difference between the Reiki and the Fakey. Shocking. <laughs> that was good, Steve. <laughs> but they were both better than, of course, the no intervention. And the outcome was the patient's subjective report of their well-being. Just. Mm. How well did they feel? Yeah, so there was a placebo effect, but no difference between the real stuff and somebody just going through the motions and miming it. So here's the conclusion. Uh, Shocking. Ready? Here's the conclusion. 
Okay. The findings indicate that the presence of an RN providing one-on-one support during chemotherapy was influential in raising comfort and well-being levels with or without an attempted healing energy field. Ah. So, so don't you wish, like, instead of putting money into more Reiki studies, we put money into empowering nurses and giving them the time and the ability to spend more quality yeah. time with patients? Yeah, wouldn't that right? be nice? So I missed the part, though, where they said Reiki doesn't work. Apparently, they forgot to put that in the conclusion <laughs> wow. that there was no effect. So I always love to make this analogy. Can you imagine a pharmaceutical study that showed no difference between the drug and oh, the yeah, placebo right. that, where this is the conclusion of the study? The findings indicate that taking a pill during chemotherapy was influential in raising comfort and well-being levels with or without an active ingredient. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Talk no. about spin. How about it didn't freaking work? Yeah. It was no difference between treatment and placebo equals not working. Yeah. But they spin this constantly. You know, this is the same thing with acupuncture and homeopathy that, oh, it's the placebo effect. It's the attention. Yeah, right. But forget the, the, the ritual placebo. Forget the thing itself. There's no physiological effect. It's adding nothing to the intervention. We don't need to prove over and over again that when you spend time with a patient, they feel better. Yeah. What this study showed is that Reiki has no specific effects. It doesn't work. When you take the spin out of it, you know, you're, you're taking all the meat out of it. Yeah, because there is no meat. There's nothing. <laughs> Where's the beef? That beef so, is right. so, so what the hell is it going to take to get through to these people? I mean, did they have to definitiv- definitively show a negative outcome? I mean, what is it going to take? No, nothing, Bob. Nothing. Obviously, evidence is irrelevant. Spontaneous I, combustion upon application of Reiki. That <laughs> where can is I sign up? Yeah, but can I sign up for this? Yeah, but so, that uh, sucks. <laughs> they, they've uh, proven yeah. that the evidence is irrelevant. Welcome to they, what we do for a living. I know, oh, yeah. but every but every now and then I just get pissed off all over again. <laughs> yep. That's good, Bob. That just keeps us going. Yeah. Keep you sharp. Remember Red Dawn? That movie Red Dawn? Yeah. All that hate's going to burn you up, boy. Keeps me warm. Oh, nice. Yep. All right. That's, that's, good bu- line. That's, that's Bob. I like it. <laughs> so I put it to you, Steve. Why don't we just come up with a company where you can hire someone to dote on you? <laughs> you can. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, listen, it's not there, legal everywhere, but. Well, there are so called boutique practices where you can pay lots of money to have all the attention you want. It's all a matter of economics. And in fact, the reason why they're so desperate to say that Reiki does something or acupuncture does something is because you can, it's a billable thing you can do. You could say, I'm doing X therapy. I'm going to bill you for X therapy. What I'm really doing is just giving you some of my time. Yeah. But, if you, but if you're going to try to bill an insurance company or, or get a hospital to support this or whatever, of, I'm just going to spend more time with patients to make them feel better. No one's going to pay for that and go for it. That's the problem. So the economics is driving the nonsense. Yeah. Yeah. All right, and, and Edzard Ernst, just to get back to his uh, article, he makes a, a specific point that it's actually unethical to recommend ineffective treatments just for the kind attention placebo effect. He says, by insisting that patients must not be treated with placebos like Reiki, scientists also advocate that they receive treatments that demonstrably work better than placebo. And in, and in fact, to summarize what he says after that, you get the placebo effect from treatments that actually work. It's not like you don't get the attention or the the benefits of it if you're if you're not if you're doing something legitimate, right? Right. Yeah, they. Two for the price of one. Simon Singh make that point in yeah. 
uh, trick or yeah, treatment. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a very good point. All right. Let's go on to a happier news item. Rebecca, you're going to tell us about ending genital mutilation. Yeah, it's a, it's a heavier topic, but for once, I think, ever, uh, I can report on a bit of good news. We've talked about female gen- genital mutilation in the past, but just for those who don't know briefly, it's a traditional practice. It involves the partial or total removal of the external female genitalia, and it's often practiced in very poor areas uh, using unsterilized tools on girls who range anywhere from infants up to teenagers. And there are no actual health benefits to this, but there's a lot of pseudoscience and myth that suggests that it, for instance, keeps women pure, that it's cleaner, that it makes sex better for the me- the, the men. Well, at least they have their priorities straight. Right, exactly. And, and the idea that it's mandated by God, which is also false um, because it actually predates Islam. And, and it's mostly practiced in Islamic areas. But uh, but yeah, it's not actually mandated by God. Yeah, but does it predate um, God, Rebecca? Uh, that yeah. I can't say for yeah. sure. Actually, Nobody probably can. Not. You're, you're, Nobody can. You have a point there. Well, um, uh, which God? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, if we're just going with a general idea of God, then no. Not Pan, man, certainly. Man probably got made up yeah. that before he made up genital cutting. Um, in reality, FGM can actually cause an intense amount of pain. Um, it can cause severe problems urinating and having sex. It can cause hemorrhaging, infection, sterility, and it can even cause death. And it's been really difficult for activists to make positive changes in the communities where FGM is practiced. Uh, but there was an article recently in the New York Times, um, Celia Duggar wrote about a group called Tosten, which is spurring a movement in Senegal that seems to actually be working. And in the past, um, the efforts by activists have, uh, sort of come from, from outside, like the UN, um, has been trying to raise funds. They have spent years trying to raise funds to help combat FGM, but they, they're only halfway to their goal. Um, they just haven't really been very effective. But this is something that's coming up much more organically uh, from the people living in Senegal. And what it involves is educating one village at a time telling families there about the dangers of female genital mutilation and educating the local moms that there's no religious requirement for the cutting. And they get everyone at once to pledge to stop cutting girls. And then what happens is word spreads from village to village via intermarrying couples. So it's actually working. Um, it's this, it's becoming a, a huge campaign in Senegal and, uh, tons of villages have already vowed to stop the cutting, and it's continuing to spread around. And the article um, in the Times makes a really interesting comparison to foot binding and how uh, it used to be that um, foot, foot binding was a horrific practice, you know, that was done to women, and it would end up, you know, leave women crippled. And what happened uh, in the uh, late 19th century was uh, basically getting uh, p- 
people getting parents to pledge not to bind their their daughters' feet, nor to allow their sons to marry women with bound feet, and the practice ended within a, a generation. So that's what they're doing now with female genital mutilation, and it seems to be working. So it's good news. Yeah, it's excellent. I mean, it is. It's always still shocking. You know, obviously we we're a bit isolated. You know, here in the West, from such things, but there are still like barbaric practices like that going on in the world, and I do think it just makes like a concerted effort. Like it just has to become unacceptable that this is happening. Yeah, and it's funny you should you should use that very specific phrase, and I think I have in the past too mentioned that FGM is barbaric. Um, that's a phrase that's specifically called out as um, one that's not used when these uh when 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 the, the people who are in these villages are going around trying to educate them um because they come from the same culture they're much more sensitive to the way that the message will be received yeah. and so they're careful not to for instance even use the term female genital mutilation and they don't talk about the fact that it's barbaric they simply point out that it's it's unhealthy that it's killing girls that it needs to stop, you know, and it's interesting because I, I think without people who are already within that culture, it would be impossible to really set up a, a, a positive dialogue because, you know, we're speaking two different languages, yeah. Yeah. you know, in, in every possible way. So this is a, a movement that's coming from within Senegal, and I think that's one of the main reasons why it's been so effective. Yeah. Yeah, I think I do think that changes like that often have to come from within because it, it when the observation or the pressure comes from without then there it does look look like, you know, one culture criticizing the traditions of another culture. Yeah. Right. Someone forcing their beliefs upon right. another culture and that yeah. doesn't fly. And that doesn't. That's not to say that we shouldn't help at all. In fact, I think that western organizations that are working on the ground in places like that need our help now more than ever. Uh, it's just that now they're getting a lot more support from people yeah. within the culture. So, you know, if you want to donate to one of the campaigns, uh, organizations like UNICEF or Equality Now, um, people who are out there doing this work, it's probably very much appreciated now more than ever. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we talked about this a little bit before, just the basic notion of there are two ethical principles uh, or moral principles, one of respect and tolerance of other cultures uh, versus a, a, another uh, ethical principle that's being violated by another culture, right? So we talked about this w with uh, cultures that are still hunting whales. It's like, well, you know, okay, we want to respect their traditions, right. but, you know, the whales are going extinct, so something's got to give. And here it's like, okay, we respect their culture, but this is, this is mutilation that shouldn't be happening. So I think the, the good compromise is to try to convince them to change the practice from within. But at some point you just have to, you have to stop people from doing this type of thing as well. You know, you just, you can't wait too long. Well, well yeah. And, and of course I, I don't think anyone's advocating waiting. It's, it's what it is more as a change of tactics this uh, the practice of female genital mutilation has actually been illegal in Senegal since I think uh, the early '90s. I could be wrong about that, but it's been illegal for quite some time. But making something illegal and then enforcing it doesn't always, 
you know, making something illegal doesn't guarantee that it's going to be enforced. And enforcing it won't necessarily guarantee that you're not just fixing a symptom as opposed to the actual disease. Uh, Because what you really want to do is not just stop people from from doing this one act, but you need to uh, convince them that there's a good reason why there's a there's a health benefit to not doing that anymore um and that will actually improve everyone as opposed to just making that culture feel as though people in that culture from feeling oppressed instead you know you'll actually get them on your side so i think it's just it's just about tactics and about how do we uh convey a message that will hopefully improve you know, the lives of the people in that culture. So one more quick update. Uh, Evan, tell us about how Harold Camping's predictions are going. Oh, yes. Swimmingly. Swimmingly. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> as you know, he had to revise his, uh, pred- his doomsday prediction back in May. Uh, and he says now that the real end of the world is October 21st. So we're going to have more to say on that in the very near future. Um, yes, of course, if you're listening to this, it, the world didn't end yesterday, but uh, we haven't had time to hear what his rationalization is, but we'll, we'll report on that, yeah, the, the, the cult rationalization next week. Yeah, well, the other option is that you were one of the saved, right? You did not sin, you met all the requirements of the rapture. And, and apparently me, otherwise I wouldn't have been able to have time to, po- to do post-production on the podcast. It's a very good point, very good point. <laughs> <laughs> all right, a more thorough, thorough examination and taking a part of Harold Camping soon. Okay, thanks, Evan. Well, Evan, it's time for Who's That Noisy? Thanks for reminding me, Steve. So let's get to it, and we'll play last week's Who's That Noisy? All right, so what was that, Evan? Well, that... Sort of, as someone described, a bunch of mice setting off a bunch of mouse traps kind of noise, if you can uh, picture that, yep. are popping wisteria seed pods. Oh. You know what wisteria awesome. seed pods are? Yeah. 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 They're a member of the pea family that grows on this climbing vine, and they uh, have uh, nice flowers and stuff, but obviously these pea pods. And pressure builds up after time as it dries out on the inside, and then... Boom! These things explode in a very wide dispersal. Mm. That's their seed dispersal strategy? That is it, yes. And it's very effective, actually. It, the more they can spread out, the less they grow on top of each other, and they have more access to sun and so forth. It's all, you know. Sounds like my honeymoon. It's evolution. <laughs> evolution at work. That was submitted by a listener, Darren Bryant, from Spokane, Washington. And Darren was able to stumped the audience. There was not a correct guess. Awesome. Well done. So very well done. And also I'm going to take this moment to credit uh, from the week prior, Ben Etherington from Chicago, Illinois, who gave us the wonderful uh, clip from Zephod Beeblebrocks the fourth. Good job. Which I forgot to do last week. So thank you, Ben, for that as well. And what do you got for this week? All right, here we go. This week's Who's That Noisy? Ladies and gentlemen, the great Randy. All right. Good one, Evan. All right. 
Aren't you going to say so good luck, everyone? Yes. So send <laughs> – take your best guess at that one. <laughs> and don't forget to send it into us at info at org, or sign on to our forums and post your message there. Good luck, everyone. I think someone will probably get that this week. I think so. We're sitting here now at TAM9 with Richard Wiseman. Richard, welcome back to The Skeptic's Guide. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. It's it's, very nice. It feels like we just spoke recently, but I don't think we've had an interview on the show actually for a, a couple of years. Uh, no, 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 a couple of years. I should apologize about my voice, first of all. Um, I'm losing my voice. What were you doing to it? Uh, well, it's, it's TAM. It's TAM, mm-hmm. actually, yeah. because I've been in lots of rooms where I've had to be shouting at people, Yeah, yeah. Uh, mainly for them to leave me alone. Uh, <laughs> and, and it's taken its toll, so I apologize. I, I, it means I, I sort of sound constantly highly emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but don't, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm fine. <laughs> no, someone's given me this, though, just as I walked in here, um, which is a, a, a cinnamon soothing throat spray. Mm. Oh. But I've never had dog urine in my mouth. I would imagine it tastes a lot like this cinnamon-soothing throat spray. It is revolting. Yep. You know, you, you, oh, so you've tried the, the cinnamon-soothing? I tried it just before I walked in. And honestly, if a dog had urinated in my mouth, I would think it tastes the same way. That's what I felt when Richard Saunders gave me that musk candy, remember? I wonder that? how you were going to finish yeah. that when you said when Richard Saunders gave me. I was thinking, <laughs> a big kiss on the lips. Anyway. <laughs> so, Richard, we saw your talk... I'm so sorry. No, it was... Uh, I shouldn't have defecated into my hand and thrown it at the audience like that. Um, first of all, there was there were things in there um, that were absolutely... Everything to me was brand new. I hadn't seen any of that. Oh, my goodness. The the pig picture... Yes. In particular, yes. My, my, fiance and I, my fiance and I actually hurt each other laughing because my arm was around her. And right. We had like a laughing like tug of war, which was painful. That was ridiculous. I, I Until you said what it was, yeah. I, I swear I... It looked like it was in the act of something happening, if you Context. get my meaning. It's, For our listeners? Yes. There was a picture of two adult pigs with a baby pig in between them, and it looked like a man with his thighs up in the air and his personal... Johnson. Johnson standing straight at attention. Okay. Exactly Thank like you. that. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it looks disgusting. Saying, it looks yeah. extremely rude. Yes. yes. Uh, and then you tell people what it is, and it still looks fairly rude. Yeah, uh, so, um, yeah, no, I like that. I like that, 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 that picture. Great. Yeah, Jay, you should read Richard Wiseman's blog, and you will get these every week. That's right. I, I, I absolutely do read his blog. I don't go every week because there's just too much skeptical material out oh, there. The but, Friday puzzle. But, the Friday puzzle. What the hell? Jay? But oh, I, yeah. reserve, I reserve most of my Richard Wiseman time to his books. Mm-hmm. And... Now, like, on to my next question. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he when, writes books? When we spoke last, which was a couple of weeks ago, yeah. I distinctly remember you saying, I will bring my books, which are not published in the United States, yeah. to you guys. Yeah. And I know you don't have any. I've got one. What does that mean? I've got one book. Oh, so you're out of luck, Jay. Um, that one's yeah. mine. Uh, I, I, uh, I got one. Okay. Because why did I, why have I got one? I had to go and buy it in the UK. Yeah. Because I, had, I actually don't have any copies. Um, and so I went to buy it, and the woman uh, where I bought it recognized me. Yeah. So I'm buying my own book in a bookstore. And she looked at me, and I looked at her, and we both – it just went silent. Yeah. Right. It was a horrible moment. <laughs> you told her, don't tell anybody. Yeah, it was horrible. So no, I've got that one um, because it was going to be um, a prize and a quiz here. But then PZ Myers won the quiz, and he's already got a copy. Yeah. Um, and so I wasn't going to give him this copy. So I've still got one copy left. So what are you going to do with it? 
I don't know actually. I might auction it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If you need uh, if you need like someone to read it though. Yeah. You let me know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just comes down to money, really. Yeah, I know. That's how sure much you're prepared to give. <laughs> all right. All right. So th- please turn that that book into money for you. But please consider possibly sending us some copies. Or you could download it from Kindle. I know, yeah. but I want the book. I want. I want. I, and this book is Paranormality, which is. Uh, bless you for mentioning it. Yes. Um, Paranormality, my new book. I know um, you're, too, you're too big to mention your own book. I, I, I would it. never do such a yeah, thing. Right. You'll buy your own book, but you won't mention it. <laughs> now, this is the book you wrote after 59 Seconds, another phenomenal. Richard Wiseman book. Oh, 230,000 uh, 230, copies sold in the UK. Yes. Nice. Yes. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I bought most of them. It cost me a fortune. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, yes. Okay. It follows um, on the footsteps of 59 and uh, looks at the psychology of the uh, paranormal. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very excited about it. So yeah, you talked about it today during your, your talk a little bit. A little bit. Um, would you like to go into a little more detail? I actually had some questions. Now, one thing you do in the book is you, you do talk about uh, why people believe in the paranormal yep. and why they're wrong. Yep. So let's start well, there. It, it, so I looked around and I, I couldn't find a single sort of uh, book with all the kind of modern research in that was like a sort of skeptical primer where you go, look, you know, you hear about out-of-body experiences and ghosts and um, people who, who seem to be able to predict the future. Here's the other side of the story. Here's the skepticism. So that's, that's what's in paranormality. It, the starting point for each chapter is none of this stuff is true. Mm-hmm. So you hear people having out-of-body experiences. They don't really leave their bodies. And ghosts don't exist either. So stop being silly. And uh, let's have a look at the psychology of why people believe this. More importantly, why they experience it. And, and that's what the book goes into. So it's, it's about you know, what, what the paranormal tells us about ourselves. So you don't waste any time you know, uh, coy, being coy with the reader about what you think about these things. You say, just no. get it out of the way. They don't exist. Now let's... It takes a grown-up attitude yeah. towards these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because of that, uh, the believers in the UK hate me even yes. more than they did before. Well, if, if they didn't hate you, you wouldn't be doing your job, right? right. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yes, yeah. But they do hate me. Uh, so, um, so yes. So, so it takes something like ghosts. And it looks at suggestibility. It takes out-of-body experiences. How does your brain uh, work out where you are at this particular moment? Um, it takes uh, things like precognition. looks at the law of large numbers, statistics. So it goes into all of these things. So just to clarify, though, uh, readers in the United States or in North America can buy it on Kindle and, and the Nook? Is uh, no, it's not on the Nook. You, uh, there's no Nook. Uh, no Nookie from you? There's no Nookie uh, on this. <laughs> no, is Nookie an American term? Would you understand Nookie? Yeah, we know oh. Nookie. Oh, really? We yeah. like Nookie. Yeah. I, thought, I thought that was a British term. It probably it was because most things that right. we do were British anyway. Right. That's yeah, right. So. Right, there's no Nookie. Uh, uh, but uh, there's a Kindle uh, and there's an iBook. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's a physical edition uh, being shipped in from the U.K., uh, by my, my UK publishers. Uh, but no, the US publishers wouldn't, wouldn't touch it. Okay. Well, I suppose yeah. I could, maybe I could order it from a, a publisher in the UK and have them ship it to me. Okay. If you really want one that badly, then I'll arrange for... Stop you begging, Jay. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, the story, but the thing that you just glossed over here was that you, you publish, you're a successful author. Very successful. Very successful author, yes. Amazing. Yes, amazing. J.K. Rowling successful. Yeah. Not quite, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like a crazy. And, <laughs> um, you, you have a successful book in the UK. You've Several. imported uh, <laughs> your latest one, The Paranormality. I'm talking, oh, I see that one. Yes. Just to that one now. Yeah. And you say, all right, I'm going to do like, like uh, with all my other books, I'm yeah. going to import this into the United States and get yeah. a publisher to publish it there. And they said, no thanks. 
That's great. We, we've trans- we'll be translated into about 20 different languages, uh, like all the, the other books. And then uh, it, it came to selling it to, to the US, and there are six major publishers in the US. Uh, and they all said no, uh, no serious offers. And um, I said, why? And they said, well, because there, there's no audience for this stuff. You've got to say this stuff is, is, um, is true. Uh, so could you change it a bit so that you say maybe ghosts exist or some psychics are psychic? And I said, no, that would be silly. Uh, so let's not do that. And then with the joys of Kindle, uh, and, and iBooks mm-hmm. and Nookie, uh, then um, you can start to, to publish yourself, and it's mm-hmm. happening more and more these days. It's, it's very exciting. Well, I'm good excited. for. I mean, you know, it serves them right to getting bypassed. Yeah. You know, because they would not publish the book, but it still is amazing that they thought that there's no market for the science of the paranormal. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. Well, it's also interesting because in America, there's such large uh, belief in the, the stuff because yeah. those two things may well be related. So you, you have around about 80%, 90% of people believing in some sort of paranormal mm-hmm. or magical um, phenomena. So huge levels compared to about 40%, 50% in the UK. And it's an industry. You have psychic hotlines. You have these ghost hunting shows on, on, yeah. on television. But you guys have rugby, so it's all... That's true. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I hate rugby. <laughs> oh. um, so, so, yeah, so that's out there. And, and I think there's a vested interest in, in not people not hearing the other side of the story, mm-hmm. um, particularly when it comes to, to going to a psychic, um, where the, the book lays out all this kind of mind tricks that the psychics use, and I went into all the sort of DVDs and training courses and so on that uh, fake psychics go on, uh, and that's upset a lot of people, and, and I think there's, there's money in them, their hills, so uh, mm-hmm. people don't want um, customers know. Now, that's an American saying. Then their hills. Then yeah. their hills. There's nookie and then their hills. Exactly. <laughs> so bridge that gap. It's a gift. Right, right, right. <laughs> so uh, one other thing I'd like to comment on your talk today, Tam, was uh, like it was brilliantly funny. Like, oh, the, I was actually telling uh, Hugo, who's a stage manager here. I said I'm I'm really nervous about going on after Richard because there was like a quick break between mm. your talk and then the the second SGU show, and uh, like you had people laughing uh, on average about every ten to fifteen seconds, and they were real laughs. It wasn't chuckles; it was audience wide laughs. So it was brilliant. I loved it. It was very good. Well, I only had half an hour, so I kind of condensed everything uh, yeah. down. And, and I think you have to justify, with a large crowd, you have to justify every single second of it in my head. So, so yeah, if, if something is interesting isn't happening within 20 seconds, then I get very nervous. Yeah. So either there'll be a point being made or a new slide or something funny uh, or, or a remark or whatever. Um, so you're really, really banging it through, yeah. yeah. I yeah. like that. I think the punchier it is, the, the, the more people feel attached to you and what you're saying. When you get those long moments at a talk, you know, as soon as you lose people, even for a moment – you could feel the room change. Yeah. Yeah, you know? yeah and the energy is, is, is very important. Um, and also, you, with this particular crowd, it was kind of interesting because it took a little while to get them. It was yeah. probably, if you listen back, it's probably only about sort of 10, 12 minutes in that they start to, 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 to get it. So it yeah. took a little while to build, but yeah, it was in there. It was mm-hmm. right. uh, we've been talking to a lot of the speakers here about you know, how to get uh, science across to the public. And one of the themes that keeps coming across over and over again, like with Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse Tyson, for example, is that they actually uh, deliberately have developed the skill set of being entertaining mm. and to use that as a vehicle for teaching science and skepticism. So, of course, th- th- this is I think, what everyone's interested in. So you obviously fit that mold as well. I mean, you're you know, all, all uh, joking aside, you're fabulously entertaining on stage and, you're, and the information that you're conveying. So how much of that was a really like a, a deliberate work on your part or, or are you just a naturally funny guy? I'm naturally hilarious. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, my friends often will say, you're very, very funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they'll say, you're a very funny man. Very funny, like that. Mm-hmm. They'll do that. They're very funny. They're the second bit. You're yeah. very funny. You're a witty chap. Witty chap. 
Um, no, it's I have background in magic, um, and and so you you think about everything. And I speak a lot. I, I, actually, I think that's the answer. I think the answer is to get out and do it a lot. So I, I give two talks like that a week. Mm-hmm. Not, not to this, actually, I mean, that's 1,500 people. That's a big talk. But in, in, in front of me. So I get that, that opportunity to change things and just get the nuance. You know, just, so with the, wow. um, uh, uh, the piglet picture, it's got to come up first of all. People have got to be shocked by it. You've got to have that moment. And then I say, you know, it's, it's just a, a piglet between two pigs. Um, I'm disgusted that you thought that way yeah. when obviously I'm the one that's put the picture up right, so yeah. it's ridiculous yeah. so then you get the, um, uh, the the second laugh and then there's a follow up which is you know I've done research and for 84.2% of you tonight this image will appear in your dreams yeah. so from that one slide there's there's three, three moments sure, in, yeah. in, in it and you know it didn't start off like that it just started with me putting up the piglet slide yeah. Yeah. Um, so these things you know it's so just oh. like a comedian or, right. or anybody that's on a stage frequently right you, you're honing it as you go yeah, and, and after that, that stuff comes under fire. You, it's very hard to think of that, that when you're just sort of sitting in your, your living room. It, it comes when you're standing there. Um, so the, the line, there's a line about Mormon teenagers uh, where I say, oh, uh, uh, God's really angry because they're getting off on a technicality. That line came to me when I was standing in the Bloomsbury Theatre in, in front of 500 people. You yeah. think that's the perfect way to end that particular routine so it sticks in. Yeah. Um, so all these little things, I mean, the answer is just get out there and do it. That's, yeah. that, that's the answer. It's, it always boils down to the hard work. And it's okay yeah. to try and fail. Right, you, you mean you figure out what works, what doesn't work, yeah. and then you'll make you'll make your judge. You can't be afraid to fail. I guess is the point. Well, Especially it depends. It, 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 it depends yeah. when you fail. So, um, so showbiz tip. Um, you know, you start and you end with strong material, stuff you've done a million times before. And a few people came up to me afterwards and said, "Oh, that opening routine, we've seen that loads of times." And you think, "Yeah, I know." But that's, that's kind of securing your beachhead before you start the invasion uh, inland. Yeah. You want that because you don't want to start with something that does fail because then it's a real uphill struggle. Mm. So, so all of the new material always goes into that center section. So that whatever, you know, you can always pick it up at the end. Um, mm, and and, and you don't think. So, so it's, it's that sort of stuff, yeah. That's right. And you just learned, you, did you learn most of that just being a performer as a magician? Or? I think it's just being sensible yeah. about it. And, and, and probably walking out a few times with some great opening lines that, 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 that died. And then you think, now it's a struggle. Yeah. yeah. So, in fact, actually, what happened here, uh, I, I started and the um, uh, mic wasn't turned on. Yeah. And that's a dodgy start. You don't want to start like that. I'm shocked. There were technical difficulties for your lecture here? Unbelievable. Uh, actually, Davey's been very good here. Um, but but so, so that's a start. So you use the old trick of, George, can you come back on and introduce me again? Crowd, can you make a big noise? Because then you've lifted the energy right up, and now, bang, you can go straight into it. You don't really want to be starting with a microphone that's a bit dodgy, and, and, and now it's all a little bit fragile at the beginning. You want something solid. So you step back, and then you go back into it a second time. Mm-hmm, yep. And these are old performer tricks. Yeah. Right, right, right. Hmm. What's your typical day like? Well, uh, so my, my existence is, is slightly bizarre. I'm split between London and Edinburgh. Uh, and when I'm in London, I'm, I'm normally doing sort of um, uh, media stuff. And in Edinburgh, I write. And so I have an office in, in uh, my flat in Edinburgh. And I get out of bed and uh, put on some clothes. <laughs> and then I go across uh, the, uh, um, the corridor into my office. And uh, most of the time, it's about four or five months of the year, I will write mm-hmm. in there. And then the other few months are promoting those books and doing research. So, so, so you work for yourself? No, I work for the University of Hertfordshire. Okay. So I'm a professor, um, but it's a professor of public understanding of science. So I do a lot of public lectures, uh, do research and publish it, and uh, give some lectures, student lectures uh, as well. Cool. Yeah, in, all in that room. 
they all come in. <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so like anybody, any other writer who spends a lot of time on their own. Uh, download an enormous amount of pornography. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Colossal. Now you're talking chase language. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Now, yeah. now do, do you teach a course at the university or is it, it just in, standalone in lectures? It's, oh. um, it's, it, I can find almost any um, uh, clip yeah. uh, involving goats. It's called Chuffing 101 by Chuffing with, Chuffing with goats. Chuffing, <laughs> Chuffing with goats. Yeah, what are the, the experiments the who chuff at goats? He, <laughs> teaches, he teaches his students how to find the exact type of porn they're looking for in the shortest amount of time. Exactly. And there is a formula to it, if you didn't know, which we can yeah. show you later. Uh, no, I, I do teach. I, so I, I teach on um, uh, psychology of performance. Mm-hmm. So I, I do stuff on magic and performance. And, that must uh, be an awesome course. Um, it's all right. It's quite fun. Yeah. yeah. Well, what's the feedback you get from your students? You must get that. Well, you know, it's mixed. It's mixed. Some of them like it. Um, there have been complaints. Uh, I, I don't think uh, they, they can be upheld. Um, but, you know, the judge said I have to be careful. <laughs> um, so, no, no, it's, 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 it's all fun and games. Um, but, so, so, yeah, I do some teaching, but predominantly yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's public um, education stuff. So you mentioned mm-hmm. before you're doing about two talks a week. Yeah. So, where, like, where are you doing these and, and where are they typically held? All over the, the, the place. Um, uh, so what am I doing uh, as soon as I get back? I'm going on holiday, actually, as soon as I get back. I'm quite cool. looking forward to that. It's mm-hmm. my first holiday in six years. Where are you going? Whoa. Oh. Yeah. Um, I'm going to um, uh, Morocco, going to Marrakesh. Ooh, excellent. Yeah. Wow. yeah, I'm quite excited. You're, you're working on a book project now? The I am. What, what's coming after Paranormality? Well, the, uh, the, uh, I've got one more book to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, that will be finished in December. So I'm very excited. I can't say what it is. There's a big secret uh, thing on it. But that's a psychology book, mm-hmm. as you might expect. And that will come out in July in the UK. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, 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 back to the, uh, it's back to the PC. Cool. Yeah. Very exciting. Awesome. Now, if I had just finished a book, I would be carrying around a copy of it with me at all times. Yeah, to right? give it to people. Well, not, no, I'm not going there again. Yeah. No, I mean, um, it would be such an accomplishment to me. Yeah. I would want to have it physically with me for a little while. But I noticed yeah. that you're not carrying your book around. No, I, the first time I, what was the first book I did? Luck Factor. The first time I went to a bookstore and saw it on the shelf, it was such a mammoth moment. Yeah. It was like, oh my goodness, look, look, look it's over there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, the and shelf is full of them. That's, why? That's, that's why? right. Why? Why, why is nobody buying these? <laughs> yeah. Um, that was very exciting. And then the second time, which was Quirkology, it was like, oh, that's quite nice. And then it's like anything else, you kind of get used to yeah. it a bit. And someone said to me, it's in the corridor outside, they said, there are 1,600 people, you walk out, that's got to be a buzzy moment. Yeah. And you think, no, actually, you know, it, as long as there's no sort of AV problems and so on, it's, it's pretty, so you get used to these yeah. things. Um, it sounds a bit glib. Um, no, it doesn't. We understand. I mean, we, when we first came to TAM and we had our first, you know, experience with people listening to the show and it was, you know, we didn't expect anything. We just, mm. you know, we wanted to be a part of TAM and be, you know, part of the audience as well and, and, you know, just experience it. But we had people like, oh, you know, really gushing and loving the show and all that stuff. And it was so weird. Like, it just was, it just didn't seem right. Like, you know, wait, wait a minute. This is yeah, just, we're yeah. the idiots and, you know, they're brothers and mm-hmm. friends. They're just recording, like, our conversations. Like, they're, you know, and then after a while, a couple of years, and you're like, it is just a part of the landscape now, yeah. you know? You know? Well, it, and, and it just shows how good we are at habituating to whatever mm-hmm. happens to us. Because mm-hmm. uh, that can be a problem. Because, you know, you buy a new car and you get excited for a week and then you want an even bigger one and same the house and so on. You get that sort of hedonistic, hedonistic uh, treadmill. Um, so the religious idea of, of reminding yourself how grateful you should be for what you've got, actually, I think it's pretty sound psychology. Yeah. Right. Um, so there are moments when I, I, I sort of think, oh, hold on a second. I make my living by writing what I find about what I find absolutely fascinating and then going out and telling people yeah. about it. 
could life be any better? Yeah, and they enjoy hearing you talk. You know? Well, they seem to, and they, they invite me back and things. And yeah. I think, no, it could not be any better yeah. than that. And, and you've got to remind yourself about, about that. So, yeah, I, I consider myself very fortunate in that sense. Yeah, yeah, we do too. I mean, just being able to have the joy of recording the show together because we love interacting with each other. You know, like, it, in a way, it's like we used to play video games with each other, and then, we, you know, we're always going out to dinner together and Chuff, spending time. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But doing something constructive that we all believe in and uh, you know, to a cause that has incredible meaning to us is awesome. That alone is worth it. Yep. And we wouldn't have been able to get through our first three years if we weren't just enjoying the process of yep. what we do. But then you know, now you start adding in events and all the friends and like, people like you that we get to meet and spend time with and everything. And it's just beyond any of my expectations I had of myself 20 years ago. Like, I didn't think anything like this would happen. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it shows that for others, I mean, it's all achievable. It's all, it's all doable. Yeah, right. and, and you have to remind yourself, I mean, when, when I walk out on, on stage, and in fact, I did it um, today, you kind of think you, you want to make this special for people. You don't want it to be like the same talk. I, I, I mean, that talk I gave last week twice. Um, you don't want it to, to feel like it's, you're on a treadmill and, and what, what goes through your head. So I, I stood in the wings thinking... These people, these 1,600 people, whatever it is, are paying a, you know, quite a reasonable amount of money to be here. How fantastic is that, that they've, they've got so much passion for scepticism and mm-hmm. science. They're prepared to, to put their hand in their pocket, come along to, to an event to hear scientists. How special is it for me, what an honour it is for me, to walk out and address that audience. This is, that's just, it doesn't get any better yeah. than that. That's just fantastic. So that's what's going through my head, so that when you walk out, it's like, that's, you're in the moment. You're right. in the moment right. with that, that group. Yeah. Well, Richard, always a pleasure. We're happy to, to just to see you again, but it's, we love uh, having you sit down with it's, us. It, and it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Paranormality out now on the Kindle. For goodness <laughs> sake, buy it. Please do. <laughs> yes. Call blimey. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> Bye-bye. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Is everyone ready for this week? Yes. Indeed. Oh, yeah. Jay, you're a little out of practice. I've been out of practice all year, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe that'll have a positive effect. Yeah, you never know. All right, here we go. Ready? Item number one, results of a new analysis of dwarf galaxies is incompatible with existing models of dark matter. Item number two, researchers have demonstrated that they can use computerized word analysis to predict recidivism in criminals for parole, up for parole with a greater than 70% accuracy. Item number three, a UK study finds that one in six mobile phones is contaminated with fecal matter. Oh, my God. All right, Jay, go first. All right, first one. The results of a new analysis of dwarf galaxies is incompatible with existing models of dark matter. Uh, You know, okay, I have no information on that. It it could, yeah. The dark matter is so weird, you know. Researchers have demonstrated that they can use computerized word analysis to predict recidivism in criminals. What is that? What is that, Steve? That means that uh, they will go. They slide backwards. They'll go on again to commit crimes. Seventy percent accuracy. Wow. Computerized word analysis to figure that out. That seems amazingly high. Uh, The last one, a UK study finds that one in six mobile phones is contaminated with fecal matter. Of course they are. Of course. I'll admit it now. I mean, I've used my phone while I was on the toilet. I have. It's like. It's the most entertaining thing I, that I own. So, uh, yeah, 
That's uh, so that one's definite. So now we're down between the first one and the second one. I don't know anything about the first one, so I'm going to definitely say that the recidivism one, the seventy percent accuracy, is the fake. Okay, Bob. Uh, the dwarf galaxy is incompatible with existing models of dark matter. I mean, what what aspect of the model? I wonder. Um, I don't know. I kind of get the sense though that they they haven't done a lot of surveys of dark matter with dwarf galaxies and specifically maybe they can do it now that the, their instrument their instrumentations are more sensitive and maybe that's why um there this is arising now but yeah, i just don't know much about that um it's possible uh maybe there's some, something about the relatively lower gravitational uh, gravity well for dwarf galaxies that make it different I'm not sure about that one yeah the computerized word accuracy that does sound very high. Um, what would it be? What would there be about uh, the word analysis? Um, hmm. I just don't see any connection between uh, word usage and recidivism. All right. The the mobile phones with the contaminated with fecal matter. Yeah, I can I can kind of buy that. I remember um, a study from a long time ago that uh, that examined like toothbrushes and contamination of, of fecal matter and. Pretty much if the toothbrush is anywhere near the toilet, it, there's going to be a detectable amount of fecal matter on it, which was kind of disconcerting. But, I mean, we're, ta- we're talking minute amounts, and that's the key thing about this is um, how do you define contaminated? I mean, if it, is it detectable? Is it, is it at the level of detectability? I mean, I'm sure it's relatively insignificant. Uh, but based on that study I've heard about years ago, I'm going to kind of makes that plausible to me. The dark matter seems plausible as well, um, so I'm gonna have to say that the uh, recidivism is uh, is the fiction. Okay, Evan. The dwarf galaxies. I know very little about dwarf galaxies, and uh, how incompatible with existing models of dark matter. I'm gonna be curious to hear how exactly. Uh, I'm sure it is fascinating. The the mobile phones and the fecal matter. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know the oh, yeah. study. The study. Oh, yeah. re- the study revealed that, and it's probably even worse than that. I mean, you know, just because the study's too limited, it's probably even worse. Um, so I'm not surprised there. This whole computerized word analysis. This smacks of I don't know. You know, polygraphs in a sense, right? I mean, or handwriting analysis. This this kind of stuff. Um, and that number seventy percent is. Seems to be too high. I agree with the other gentleman. I have to go with that one being the fiction. Okay, Rebecca. Yep. yep. Me too. Okay. There it is. There she blows. <laughs> I, I don't so really have much to. All right. We, but, remember, have a fun, I, something funny to say about fecal matter? I, Random guessing know, is fifty percent. So seventy percent is not yeah, that much like better. Yeah, of, of course, there's fecal matter <laughs> on everything you own. So just just forget about so, it. Hurry, yeah. yeah. Hurry up, Rebecca. Thank you. Your keyboard, my God! Don't even think about what is on your computer so keyboard. Don't at this lick very your moment. keyboard. Is that what your? Is that your uh, advice for the day? That's my advice for every day. <laughs> that's um, a bumper. Sticker. Dark matter, yeah. The dark matter is deeply mysterious, <laughs> and who knows what the hell? Like they're going to be revising our models of dark matter for quite a while. So that makes perfect sense to me. So that leaves this idea that yeah, word analysis seventy percent accuracy. That's a ridiculously high level of accuracy that I don't buy for a minute. 
All right. So you guys seem the most confident about number three. A UK study finds that one in six mobile phones is contaminated with fecal matter. Mobile phones, too. And that one is science. Disgusting science. <laughs> yeah, I don't really want to say hooray to that. I actually, I actually thought one in six seemed low. I would expect even higher than that. Yeah, well, the uh, specifically by contamination, they mean that they were able to find E. coli. Oh, which, yeah. on the phones, which comes from fecal matter. And is that from me using it when I'm on the, the toilet? The, the yeah, or just the not washing your hands? You know, yeah. in handling your cell phone and going to the bathroom uh. without washing your hand with soap. Then why don't we have more cases of E. coli contamination and sickness well, in people? Yeah, that's right. Well, we do. I mean, you know, it, it is a it is a common pathogen that we pass hand to mouth. Unfortunately, they said although ninety five percent of people said they washed their hands with soap where possible, ninety two percent of phones and eighty two percent of hands had bacteria on them. That's not surprising. But sixteen percent of hands and sixteen percent of phones were found to have E. coli, which comes from only one place. Um, so bacteria of fecal origin. There are different types of E. coli. Some are more harmful than others. But generally yeah. speaking, you don't want to get them into your orifices, other than the one where they come from. Uh, this is why this is. We talked about the this uh, this news item was released actually in preparation for a National Hand Washing Day, which we talked about last week. And this is one of the reasons why you. This is one of the situations where you do want to wash your hands thoroughly with soap after being in a. Uh, Restroom situation. Now I want to wash my phone. And your phone, yeah. Take. I have access to alcohol pads, you know, in the clinic where I work, so it's easy mm-hmm. just to. Plus, I'm always washing my hands or using the, um, like this, the uh, hand sanitizer. Yeah, because it's, it's ubiquitous now in clinic yeah. situations. So, yeah, I, I, I wipe down my instruments, my phone, everything. Settle down. Wax the dolphin. <laughs> Polish my cell phone. <laughs> Evan, I am appalled, as Richard Wiseman would say. I am absolutely appalled. All right, let's go to number one. Results of a new analysis of dwarf galaxies is incompatible with existing models of dark matter. You guys all think this one is science, and this one is yes, science. science. <laughs> Don't get ahead of yourselves there. And this one is also science. So, Bob, have you read this one? Ah, uh, yeah. I did. Okay. Okay. So, uh, wow. what they so all hey, right. I read it too. Give me a little credit. <laughs> all right, all right, yeah, I know. I okay. told you this was going to be easy this week. All you reading people. Um, <laughs> so, dark matter, as most of our listeners probably know, know is the uh, extra matter out there that we can't see that is providing the extra gravity that we measure when we calculate how fast galaxies are rotating and how fast they should be rotating based upon the matter that we can see. We say, huh, there's got to be some extra gravity in there. There's something else providing gravity that is, that is dark, hence dark matter. We're not exactly sure what dark matter is, but there are some theories. Uh, astronomers have used computer models to uh, predict where the dark matter would go and what structures it would form if dark matter is comprised of cold Material, meaning that it's not very hot, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> wow, thanks that was, for that expert thanks, insight. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Being slow moving, mm. slow moving. And the computer models say that it should be clumping in the middle of the galaxy. So they looked at dwarf galaxies. They chose dwarf galaxies because they have a very large proportion of dark matter to visible matter. 
They don't have that many stars. And what they found is that the dark matter appears to be uniformly distributed throughout the galaxy, not clumped in the middle. So, so that the observation is incompatible with the existing computer models of how cold dark matter should be behaving. So this means one of two things that the astronomers have been able to figure out so far. Either dark matter is not cold, or two, it's interacting with normal matter in differently than we assumed. So dark matter just got darker. Yeah, it's even more mysterious than... than we thought it was. Of course, there are those who might say, well, maybe there isn't dark matter. Maybe it's all you know, modified Newtonian dynamics. But I think that's pretty much been put to bed. That's not the yeah. sole explanation. There's got to be like the bullet cluster we always bring up. Exactly. Yeah. I also think if the, the, just what they're saying about dwarf galaxies, if dwarf galaxies have a different proportion of dark matter to visible matter, that also kinds of calls into question it all being modified Newtonian dynamics, you know, basically modifications of gravity. It's got to be a thing, right? If there could be different amount of it in relation to regular matter. Sounds reasonable. Yeah, whatever. That's my understanding anyway. So, uh, yeah, but that's pretty cool. So all of this means that researchers have demonstrated that they can use computerized word analysis to predict recidivism in criminals up for parole with a greater than 70% accuracy is complete fiction. But I'll bet you someone thought it was right and wrote a report on it, right? No, uh, I based it loosely on a different uh, news item involving computerized word analysis. Uh, this was not as – well, it's, just, it's hard to um, – I decided not to use this as a real news item just because it's kind of like a preliminary study. But they, uh, what they looked at is um, they took psychopaths, which I find fascinating, by the way, especially after reading John Ronson's book, The Psychopath Test, which we interviewed him about, and they took – criminals, non-psychopathic violent criminals, and they had them recount their crimes. Then they transcribed them, and then they did word analysis, like a computerized word analysis on their you know, first-person description of their crimes that they committed. And what they found was that the psychopaths used cause and effect descriptors more often than the non-psychopaths. Words like because or since, meaning, and they interpret this as that they were making more effort to justify their actions. Although the, the degree to which that was increased was very, it was statistically significant, but it was tiny. It was like 1.8 versus 1.5% of the words that they used. So I wasn't too impressed with that. They focused on material needs, food, drink, and money, twice as much as non-psychopaths. That was a little bit more of a reasonable effect size. And fewer references to social needs, family, religion, and spirituality, which fits the description of psychopaths that they are more focused on basic physical needs and less on so-called higher social needs. Uh, they also used more uh, disfluencies like uh or um, which was interpreted as they were expending more cognitive energy describing their their crime, maybe because they were trying to sp- they were spending more time trying to spin it in a certain way, right? So they were they were trying to describe it in a way that was more favorable to them as opposed to just saying what happened. But that's very speculative. So the, the, the study's interesting. I found it uh, very speculative. And it also, I would be more impressed if they then did the next, the obvious next step, which is take psychopaths and non-psychopaths as unknowns and see if the uh. computer can tell you which one's a psychopath and which one isn't. 
Now, that doesn't necessarily flow from this kind of data. We've talked about this before as well. The fact that there are statistical differences between psychopaths and non-psychopaths doesn't mean that you can look at an individual. This is the inherent problem with lie detectors. There may be statistical differences in what our brains do and what words we use when we're lying. That doesn't mean that you can tell when an individual is lying with any kind of sensitivity or specificity. So it may not work going backwards, but it would be real interesting to see if it does or to what extent it does. But anyway, I didn't use it as a real one because I thought this was a little bit speculative for that. But it was interesting. Good work, everybody. You guys had no problem sniffing out the fake this week. Yeah. Thank you, Steve. Oh, yeah. You'll have to try well, harder with the fecal time. matter. I will. You know. Yeah, I knew. I had to use that one, but I knew that was going to be a giveaway. So, Jay. Yes. I know you're just you're right, fresh off the plane almost from your, your honeymoon, but did you manage to uh, scare up a quote for, this, uh, for us this week? Yeah, I have two quotes. Two? Oh, wow. Yeah, one that is non-skeptical from Michelangelo. And Michelangelo said, if people knew how hard I work to get my mastery, it wouldn't seem so wonderful at all. And sure. uh, I thought that, thought that was interesting because he, he created the uh, Pieta in the Sistine Chapel when he was 24 years old, and he was already a master at 24. But indeed, he did work incredibly hard at his, at his skill. Yeah. And earned earned his place in history because partly because of his hard work and partly because he's a freak. He was born a freak, freakishly good at at anything that he tried. So thank you, Michelangelo. I have another quote. This is a quote I never would have found if it weren't for a listener named Derek Billings from Bloomington, Illinois. It's a very interesting quote from uh, the movie and the book and I believe the play Shogun. How how baffling it was that even the most cunning and clever people would frequently see only what they wanted to see and would rarely look beyond the thinnest of facades, or they would ignore reality, dismissing it as the facade. And then, when their whole world fell to pieces, they would tear their topknots or rend their clothes and bewail their karma, blaming gods or kami or luck or their lords or husbands or vassals, anything or anyone, but never themselves. James Clavel from Shogun. James Clavel! That is a very good quote. It's very skeptical. Well, it's good to have the whole gang back together. Jay, it's good to have you back from Italy. Thank you, thank you. This is a good time to remind our listeners that the gift-giving season is coming up. And what better gift to give to somebody than the gift of skepticism? <laughs> what better that, gift? That's cheesy. Wow. Enough. Wow. That's what you want. Wow. Hallmark esque. You can go to skepticalrobot.com and buy all kinds of skeptical swag to give to your friends, family, and loved ones. And uh, you can also go to our, our store on our page, on uh, the homepage, the SGU. Go to the store button, and you can see not only the link to the skeptical robot, but also to Cafe Press. You can also purchase our. SGU Uncut special episodes. And I'll also remind everybody, this make, does make an excellent gift. You can purchase Medical Myths a, in DVD or CD from the teaching company. This is a 24-lecture series hosted by your humble host. You can either get an audio or video available from the teaching company. There is a link to that both on Neurologica as well as on our store page. Good, good job. Thank there. you. Thank you. I know. I'm, I'm, I should have been a, I should have been a salesman. I should get like a, a second job on QVC. What do you call that? Just, yeah. Oh, yeah. I could totally see you on QVC. 
<laughs> Next up, we have uh, the gift for the skeptic in your life. It's uh, it's a podcast. You can you can hear it. You can give. Uh... Thanks for joining me again, guys. Surely, thank you. Thank you. It was fun. I'm I'm back. Jay is back. Jay is back. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom or your portal of choice. <laughs>